This morning, would you turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. The Gospel of Mark in chapter 8 will begin in verse 27. You can go to your Nova Community Church app and find a Bible there. And Mark chapter 8, verse 27. And we'll go to chapter 9, verse 1 today. We are in a new series entitled Kingdom Come. And it's all about the kingdom of God. We sang all about it this morning and heard songs about it this morning. Last week we talked about the foundational nature of the kingdom from cover to cover in the Bible. And it weaves through the whole story of God, this what we call the beautiful golden thread through the pages of Scripture. And when the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray, Jesus in a part of that prayer, taught them about the coming kingdom. And if we're exploring the kingdom of God, like we said last week, the primary thing about the kingdom of God is who the king is. And so we have to know the king because there's no kingdom without a king. In Psalm 24, the psalmist asks and answers, who is he, this king of glory, the Lord Almighty? He is the king of glory. Mark chapter 8. Verse 27, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked them, who do people say I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And then he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. That's God's word for us today. When the pastoral staff first began to pray and talk about the Kingdom of God series, it was, it was frankly honest, it was frankly hard for me to conceptualize, to be honest with you, how to communicate what generally was a foreign idea for me about a kingdom, about a king. 
And I started to think about why, was it, why is it hard for me to sort of conceptualize the kingdom of God? Because it's all through the Bible. And then I started thinking that I think it's because I looked through a lot of my life through the lens of American culture, through the lens of even American history, without even thinking about it. The concept of kings and kingdom through the lens of American culture is interesting because I think about pilgrims and sailing across the ocean, and I think about how they risked their lives to sail this treacherous sea to come to a new land. For what? Some historians say that they sailed across the ocean for a better life, looking for a better life, and others say to escape the state church and seek religious freedom, which is our denominational affiliations. That's how they got their start, converge worldwide in the Evangelical Free Church of America. That's that word free in the evangelical free church means free from a state church, free from government rule. Kind of a funny thing these days when you say something is free, like BPA free or, or gluten free, right? I, I remember um, some time ago going to the bank and, and wanting to open a checking account for the church. And they were taking my information down, and the account representative was filling out a form and asking me questions. And she said, well, what denomination is your church? And I said, the Evangelical Free Church of America. And she said, Evangelical Free. And I said, yeah. And she said, I'm for that. <laughs> you know, free, like without evangelicals. It's, it's what she thought that was all about. And so... The pilgrims, I guess we're getting back to the pilgrims, uh, the pilgrims sailed this treacherous voyage for a better life, for religious freedom, and still others say that they sailed to get away from the oppression of kings and kingdoms. And we see that in some ways with our founding fathers in America rejecting sort of this monarchy rule and creating a republic with balanced powers. Yet people all around the world continue to be drawn towards and fascinated by kings and kingdoms. We see that in, in movies and TV shows and stories, in the, of course, the <clears throat> Lord of the Rings, and, and recently a, a TV series, Game of Thrones, all about kings and kingdoms and, and thrones. We, see it in fairy tales that we all love, how they end with happily ever after lives. And although we are fascinated by the royal monarchy, I think honestly, truth be told, I think each and every one of us wants to be a king of our own lives, a ruler of our own lives, rather than submit to the king. In our personal life, we want to be boss of our lives. We don't want anyone telling us what to do we want to be king of ourselves. And so we look at our text today, and I think the question we should ask in our text is, who is this king anyways? If the kingdom is primarily about the ruler, the king, who is he? The Gospel of Mark tells us, as we look in the life of Jesus, in, in chapter 8, it marks a, a, the, the middle of the Gospel, 
Because in chapters 1 through 8 in the Gospel of Mark, everything revolves around one question, and it's who is Jesus? Who is this? In our text, we see in verse 27, Jesus and his disciples, they're, they're traveling by foot in villages in the area, and as they're walking around, Jesus asks them, who do people say that I am? And they give answers to Jesus, and then the disciples really don't get it, well, all except for one. And Jesus asks them, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And then Peter answers, well, you are the Christ. And when Peter uses the word Christ, he's using a word that literally means the anointed one, Messiah the King. And, and Peter's not just saying, Jesus, you're the king, you're, you're the ruler of us all. He's saying, Jesus, you're the king to end all kings. The king that's going to put everything right. The true king. The, the king forever. A king like no other. And then Jesus accepts that and then immediately begins to say things that are appalling and shocking to those who are listening to him. He's saying, I am this king. He says, I am the king. And I'm nothing like you would have ever expected. Today's text here in Mark chapter 8, it's crucial, it's pivotal in this new series, Kingdom Come. It tells us about the king and the people who worship the king. The first thing we, we find when we say, who is this king from Mark chapter 8 is, number one, the king must suffer the cross. The king must suffer the cross. In verse 31, <clears throat> it says, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. And what we see in our text here is a couple key phrases, and the first key phrase is Son of Man. This was Jesus' favorite term for himself. The, Hebrews, the Hebrew scriptures prophesy of a divine figure that finally puts everything right. And we read about this in Daniel chapter 7. It says, In my vision in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, in this vision at night, I looked and there was before me, before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And, and then in Mark chapter 8 and verse 38, Jesus is identifying himself with his prophecy in Daniel chapter 7. In, in Mark chapter 8 verse 38, it says, The Son of Man comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And the Son of Man is this conquering, this kingly figure. But Jesus also says this. He uses the word must. So it's not just the Son of Man identifies himself as this kingly conquering figure, but then there's a, there's a change because he uses this word must and he uses it with must suffer, must be killed in verse 31. The Son of Man, this conquering figure, must suffer many things and he must be killed after three days rise and rise again. At that time, no one ever conceived and connected suffering with the king until this moment. 
In Isaiah 43 and 44 and 53, there's this mysterious suffering servant that's prophesied about, but no one ever before put together these texts, the ones in the Old Testament, with suffering because Messiah was to come and make everything right in the world and defeat all evil and injustice. How could the ultimate ruler king defeat evil and injustice by being killed? Because it makes no sense at that time. And when Jesus says he must suffer and be killed, Peter begins to rebuke him in the strongest words that we find. It's the same words that Peter rebukes Jesus as we read through the Gospels, and, and Jesus uses those same words to rebuke Satan. And so Peter's using these strong words of rebuke to Jesus. Why does Peter do this, though? It's because since Peter was young, he was told that one day Messiah King would go to Jerusalem and defeat evil and injustice by going to the throne, where all good kings go. They go to their thrones. And Jesus says, I'm Messiah King. I'm going to Jerusalem. I will defeat evil and injustice, but not by going to a throne, but by going to a cross. And the cross, they knew, was the ultimate in helplessness and shame. It wasn't a throne at all. It was opposite of a throne. Every other kind of execution that was known to them at that time had way more dignity than the cross. On the cross, you were stripped naked. You were laid open. People could gawk at you. You were humiliated. And it was the exact opposite of what a throne would be for a king. And King Jesus said, that's where I'm going. I'm going to Jerusalem not to live but to die. I'm not going to Jerusalem to take power but to lose power. I'm not going to Jerusalem to rule but to serve. And that's how I'm going to defeat evil and make everything right in the world. Remember, Jesus, as we read this, he doesn't say the Son of Man will suffer. He says the Son of Man must suffer. He doesn't say that he's come to die. He says, I have to die. But here's the question, I think, for us. Why, why must Jesus the King die? Why must Jesus the King die? And there's three reasons. The first reason is a personal reason, and it's so that we can be transformed by his love. Personally, that we can be transformed by his love. He had to die to give humanity an example of a real love, a love of another kind. In John 15, 13, it says, Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. Now think with me. Think with me now with your relationships and your loves. Most of the time, we invest our love in something else so that we can get a good return from it. So we love so that we can get something back. And this is conditional. This is non-vulnerable love. You are loving someone or something to get something back from it. It's a return on your investment love. What we really need in our life, and, and you search deep in your heart what you really long for, is you need someone to love us radically. And you need someone to love us unconditionally and vulnerably. And someone that loves us that doesn't really need our love at all. 
This love of another kind, it, it assures us of our value. And if we had this, we would be so love confident that we could love others in the same way. Who is capable of this? Who is capable of loving so radically and so unconditionally and so vulnerably? It's the king who died for us to personally show us what real love is. Why did the king have to die? So that personally we could be transformed by his love and that we could know what that love is and that we could begin to love others in that same way. The second reason the king must die is legally so that we can be pardoned for our sins. When someone really wrongs you, there's always a debt to be paid. If you're in a car accident, it's one of those things. You get in a car accident and you pull over to the side and you produce your driver's license and, and proof of insurance because someone has to pay for those damages to that car. Or someone robs you of happiness in your life, an opportunity for happiness. Maybe someone tells a lie about you or maybe someone gossips about you, spreads a, 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 a a rumor about you. Once you realize that there's a debt to be paid because someone robbed you of your happiness or someone damaged your car in an accident or you can just go on and on how people wrong one another when they, when they get together. Once you realize that there's a debt to be paid, there's two things that you can do. The first thing you can do is you can make that other person suffer by paying that debt. And if you make them suffer to pay you back, well, you're becoming just like them. You're in exacting suffering on them. The second is, thing you could do is you could forgive. When you refuse vengeful thoughts or actions, there is suffering still. But what happens when you refuse vengeful thoughts and actions and you forgive somebody, it hurts because it hurts you as you forgive. And if we know that forgiveness always entails suffering, if forgiveness always entails suffering for the forgiver, and we know that if there's any hope in making wrongs right, there must be a price to be paid. So why does it surprise us that when God says, the only way I could forgive the sins of humanity is if I suffer why are we so surprised by that? The only way to be forgiven and pardoned for our sins is if the king goes to the cross to pay our debt for our sin. Why did the king have to die? First, there's a personal reason. Second, there's a legal reason. And third, there's a reason for victory, to conquer the power of death and evil. In, in verse 31, it's interesting because there were human authorities that should have been standing up for justice, but instead perpetuated an act of injustice. And in verse 31, they're named here. It says, he was rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. These are the authorities that should have stood up for this injustice, but they didn't. Jesus was a victim of injustice. He was exploited and he was oppressed. And he stands united with people who have injustice exacted on them and oppression in their lives. 
Jesus suffered the injustice of a, of a corrupt human justice system at that day. In Colossians chapter 2, there's, a, there's an interesting sentence at the very end in, in verse 15. It says in verse 13, He forgave all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And then in verse 15 it says, In having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of those powers and authorities by triumphing over them by the cross. See, when Peter rebukes Jesus and sides with the unjust authorities of that day, Jesus calls Peter Satan. Now, why did Jesus do that? What Jesus meant was that behind all of those corrupt human power structures that exploit and oppress people are demonic forces. And when Jesus went to the cross, he won through losing. And he got power and influence through serving. And he got all the glory and all the riches by giving himself away. And he turned the values of power and authority structures upside down. That's the kingdom way. The world's glorification of power and privilege and status and wealth was exposed for all time and it was defeated on the cross. Because the king went to the cross, any unjust power and authority, structure or system, can try to exploit you with fear and death, but ultimately you know that death is victory because of the king. Number one, the first thing we can find out about the king is the king must suffer on the cross. The second is the followers of the, of the king must go to the cross also. The followers of the king, well, you've got to go to the cross also. In verse 34 of Mark chapter 8, it says, Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. The real question here is, what does it mean to take up your cross? What, when he says they must take up their cross, what does that really mean? There's three things that we could find in these, uh, in these verses. The first is you need to get a new identity. When you take up your cross, you get a new identity. It says in verse 35, For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. The word life here is an interesting word. It's the Greek word psyche. We get our word psychology from it. It means identity. It's, it's where you get your distinct and valuable self, where you get your identity, where you get your value, where you get your distinctiveness in your identity. Jesus is not saying here to lose yourself and to lose your identity because that would be Eastern philosophies. If he meant that, he would just say, uh, you must lose yourself to lose yourself. But ultimately, what Jesus wants is he wants us to find ourselves. Jesus says, don't build your identity on gaining things in the world. Don't build your identity by getting a promotion at work, or don't build your identity by what your GPA is. Don't build your identity by, by your, 
your athletic prowess, your, all the things that you have, your materialism. Don't build your identity on your bank account. Don't build your identity on your privilege or your status. Don't build your identity on those things. Every culture in the world points to something and says, if you gain this, then you'll be great. If you acquire this, then you've reached the top. If you achieve that, then people will really think you're something. Then you're a somebody, and then you know you're valuable. Every culture has different ideals, and it's all performance-based. And Jesus says this, that will never work. Leave the performance-based identity behind and find yourself in me and find yourself in the gospel. How do we find ourselves in Jesus and how do we find ourselves in the gospel? C.S. Lewis wrote a, a classic book called Mere Christianity. And towards the end of that book, he writes these words that would describe this. He says, the more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let him take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. In that sense, our real selves are all waiting for us in him. The more I resist him and try to live on my own, the more I become dominated by my own heredity and upbringing and surroundings and natural desires. We need to seek Jesus and we need to seek the gospel and we get a new identity through that. The second thing on how do we go to the cross, how we take up our cross, is that we get a new agenda. We get a new agenda. Peter has his own agenda, as, as you read in this text, for, to, for Jesus to be a conqueror instead of a suffering king that goes to the cross. I think a good question for us to ask is, what is your agenda for Jesus in your life? What do you want Jesus to do to make your life better? Is your agenda the end? And is Jesus just the means for your agenda? And if that's you, you're only using Jesus in your life. Jesus is the king. He's the ruler of the kingdom. And you can't negotiate. No one negotiates with the king. If you come to the king and you say, you know what, king, I'll obey you if, and then put out your request, then you're not obeying at all. You're just negotiating with the king. And if Jesus is only just a regular king, then you, we all just have to submit to him because we're part of this kingdom. But he is a king on a cross, which means he suffered and he died for you. And therefore, you can trust him that he has the best agenda for your life. My new agenda has to be if I take up my cross. My new agenda is king, whatever you say I do, and whatever you send, I'm going to accept in my life. The followers of the king must go to the cross, and, and to take up your cross means that you gain a new identity. The second is that you gain a new agenda, and the last thing we could find here is that we get a new hope. We get a new hope. Mark chapter 9, verse 1, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God 
has come with power. Now, Jesus is not saying this. He's not saying this generation will not pass away until I return back, my second coming back to earth, because we all know that this hasn't happened. So what's he saying here? And what he's saying is, the king is saying, I started in weakness, but someday there will be a new kingdom, a new heaven and a new earth. And the kingdom of God begins with weakness and humility and a recognition of a need for a savior for us as we take up our cross. But it won't always stay weak. And that's good news. Someday love will triumph over hate. Love will triumph over hate. And life will triumph over death someday. And, and soon we'll begin to see the kingdom come with power. Because after Jesus says this, and he goes to the cross and he dies, the kingdom does come with power because there's resurrection. And then even after that, we see the kingdom does come with power at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes to the church. And so there are kingdom signs of kingdom power coming. C.S. Lewis, in just the very last words in his book, Mere Christianity, he says this. He says, give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life, and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him. And with him, everything else thrown in. Let's pray together.